0: Advent, which is the season that we are in, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas and the days in between, is actually a season of longing for Christ to come again. In a sense, it points towards Christmas because we're longing for Christ to come. But as he's already come, Advent is a season of longing for Christ to come, and it's marked by that longing for him to restore all things, to right all wrongs. But Advent properly is also a season of anticipating that when Christ comes again, he will come as judge. So both the restoration and the judgment are present in Advent. And thus there's longing and hope, but also sobriety and repentance. Now, many of us, when we think about God as judge, coming as judge, we remember that verse that many of you memorized that goes, You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. I mean, think about that wording there, right? That's how we think of God coming as judge. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He knows who's been naughty and who has not been nice. He knows if you've been bad or good. You better be good for goodness sake. I mean, he's coming. But that has nothing to do with the gospel. That is not the way that we who are in Christ are to view God's coming again, even as judge. What is the gospel? The gospel is very clear in John 1, 12. To all who did receive him, that's Jesus. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, believed who he is, he gave the right to become children of God. How do you receive Christ? You admit that you're a sinner. And you believe that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. And if that's the case, there is no fear when he comes again. But I want to stick on one little part that I just threw out there. It's if you admit your sin and you believe Jesus is your Savior and Lord, that part, Lord, is actually pretty important. When we talk about is Jesus your Lord, we actually mean this Do you desire what he desires? Do you love what he loves? Has Christ reformed your heart's loves and priorities? So, many of you, uh, if you read this book, Gary Chapman's The Five Languages of Love or something like that, it was out 20 years ago and it was for marriages. And it was talking about how does your spouse want to be loved? Does he or she like gifts or acts of service or words of affirmation? And it's in some of ways, it's intuitive, right? If you're a friend to somebody else, you find out the sorts of things they like, and you do those for them. Um, some of us are a little more clueless, so we, the book is really helpful. Um, and if your spouse likes gifts, and all you do is give her words of affirmation, she's going to be wondering where the wrapped present is. And so in many ways, you need to know what heartstrings to pull for her. Or for him. And we do this almost intuitively with friends, with family, with spouses. It's we do the things for them that we know they will enjoy. We want to bless them. And so if you think about it on a spectrum, you can have this. You can have, here is a good friend or a family member, and I love them the way they want to be loved. Or I do whatever I want, I don't care how they want to be loved. Or even though they're my family or friend, I am mean, abusive, harsh, rejecting of them. The question with God is the same thing. Do you say, yes, he's my Lord and Savior, but in reality you do whatever you want? Or yes, I know he wants me to do this, but this is what I want to do. In order to love what God loves, We actually need to know what God loves. We need to know God's heart. And that's why, week in and week out, we dig into God's Word. The Bible is God's self revelation to us. You want to know what God is like? You find it in there. But often people go to the Bible simply to figure out what to do, how to live their life. And I actually don't think that's the primary thing we're called to do with Scripture, with the Bible. Nor is it just to go and find good doctrine. And what not to do, which is how I thought about the Bible 30 years ago. What do I need to avoid and what should I think? Rather, when you open up the pages of the Bible, ask this, what does this tell me about the nature of God, his priorities, his ways? What does God love? What is his heart tuned to? Let's look at Isaiah 56 and see what God loves. In Isaiah 56, verses 1 and 2, the prophet, writing to the people of Israel, says this, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, that's talking about Advent, and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So God is talking about how to kind of live out what he wants us to do. And the two things he talks about are keeping justice and keeping the Sabbath. And one of these I get more than the other, but as I was looking at it, it became more clear. And it's the keeping the Sabbath part. Why does God again and again in the prophets say keep the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath? Because in order to keep the Sabbath, Yahweh had to be Lord of your life. To not work one day a week, to let your land stop being produced upon or to to stop working and making money, that one day a week, meant that your time, your money, had to be offered to the Lord at least one day a week. It was reckoning that my day, my time, my money, everything that I have is actually ultimately God's. And the Sabbath was an act that declared that. But here's the challenge of the Sabbath in that ancient world. It made no sense. If you wanted to get along, if you wanted to prosper, if you wanted your life to go well, you probably needed to work all seven days on a farm. And on top of that, no other culture did it. Everyone else is working seven days a week, they're getting ahead. But for some reason, God calls Israel to stop. And there's a whole lot tied to the creation in Genesis that I don't want to get into. But it was not intuitive and it was not rational actually, if you were simply trying to further your own ends? Everyone else was doing something different. And it makes my life better if I work all seven days, or at least make my servants do so. Why would God tell you to do something or not do something that everyone else was doing? Who is Lord of your life? Yahweh or somebody else? Keep my Sabbaths. And the second is this, justice. Keep justice. Basically, justice is establishing God's purposes on this earth. It's the righting of wrongs. And and to simplify it, it's providing for and protecting the weakest. One Jesuit from the 60s called the Bible filled with God's love for the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable are throughout Scripture. They are the poor and the orphan and the widow and the sojourner. And again and again, God says, I love the poor and the orphan and the widow and the sojourner, and so must you. I want you to protect them because I want to protect them. And one of the primary reasons why Israel gets judged in the Old Testament, when the prophets come in, they're speaking words of judgment as Israel's being sent into exile, driven out of the promised land, is because they worshiped other gods and they lacked justice. They were not keeping the Sabbath or protecting the weak. You do not love God, and you do not love what God loves, is what the Lord says again and again. And God's love is deeply entwined in the status and place of the most vulnerable and weakest. As a friend of mine who was studying the Old Testament for what it said about this, wrote, the heart of the ethic of Scripture is that both nations and individuals will be judged by how they treat the widow, the orphan, and the alien, the most vulnerable among us. And what is God's heart for the most vulnerable among us? We see it as this passage continues, as he talks about two of the most outcast and vulnerable in that ancient society. He starts with the eunuch, In verse 3 of Isaiah 58, it says, And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. I'm going to stop there and just kind of explain that in case you haven't heard somebody talk about this. A eunuch was a physical change that happened to a man when they were castrated in order to serve in people's homes if they were rich and wealthy or to serve in the high courts. Now, this was done for a number of reasons. If you were going to have a man serving in your house with your family, with your children, often if you were rich enough, you would have him castrated so that he made no threat to your family. But high court officials were also almost always castrated for very obvious reasons, which is when you had a king, he wanted the throne to be passed on to his son. And if all of your chiefs of staff around you do not have sons, it takes away their threat to you. They can't take over and in perpetuity have the throne. You could be the kind of person who was a eunuch because somebody chose you to be so, to serve in your house. But many times in the ancient world, people chose to be eunuchs because it was a way to access power and wealth and achieve higher status. You got to be in the West wing. It was a way of seeking significance at the expense of family and children. It was choosing career over family, if you would. But in Israel, this was forbidden because of God's love of humanity and creation and our calling into that. But what Isaiah 58 or 56 is talking about is eunuchs who love the Lord God, who have come to faith in Yahweh. They were probably not Israelites, but they may have been if they had been taken away. Even a eunuch who loved the Lord was always outside, always an outcast. They were an outcast because they had no children. And in traditional cultures, in the Jewish culture in particular, family and sons were so highly valued. There was a shame in barrenness that is a common theme in the Old Testament with Sarah and Rachel and Hannah all the way through to the New Testament. And if you were a eunuch, you would never have children. That was incredibly shameful. And because you would not have heirs, any land that you did possess, possess would leave your family line. It would no longer stay in your family's name. When you as a eunuch died, everything that you had would end. There was no lasting legacy or heritage in a culture that overvalued the heritage and legacy you passed on. And on top of that, Deuteronomy 23 said that the eunuch was forbidden from participation in worship at the temple. You had no part in the religious and cultural center of the people of God. You, even if you loved God, were always an outsider. And yet, that's not what God says. God's promise in verse 4 is to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, to the eunuch who holds fast to me, who connects themselves to me, the one who says, I am related to you, God. I'm gonna cling to you, Lord God. God says, I will, verse five, give a monument and a name in my house within my walls better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name. Think about how all the promises God gives are a complete reversal of all of the sorrow and shame and sadness of the eunuch. The wording is there intentionally. Yahweh, God, in compassion and amazing grace, speaks directly into their deepest insecurities, their deepest sorrows, their deepest shame. And he says, if you are with me, if you are with me, you will have a family. You will have lasting significance. You belong, even if nobody else says you do, you belong with me forever. This is your home and your family, me. Think about how that sounded to the eunuch who everywhere else was pushed away. How sweet and personal and hopeful that was to him. And the Lord doesn't end there. He goes on to talk about the foreigner, another vulnerable outcast in that ancient society. In verse six, we read, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, cling to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant. Again, all of this language for both the eunuch and the foreigner was relational and covenantal relational and covenantal. It was very much like Ruth, if you were here last week, committing to Naomi in a covenantal declaration saying, Naomi, your God will be my God. Your people, my people. I am going where you go. And God is saying to the foreigners who come into Israel and say, Yahweh, you are my God. I cling to you. I'm going to hold fast to you. I want you. God is speaking to them, but The foreigner in the ancient world, and we talked about this last week, the sojourner, the immigrant, the foreigner, was an incredibly vulnerable and defenseless place to be. In that ancient world, because of ethnic divisions and political wars, foreigners within your land were always seen as a threat. They were disdained. They could not be trusted. On top of this, a foreigner in Israel could not own land. And that meant they essentially had no way to provide for themselves. And also because they had no land, they had no social status, which was very often based on the lands that you owned within the, the promised land. And without social status, without personhood, if you would, you had no legal protection, no recourse if something happened to you. the powerful could exploit and abuse a foreigner with impunity. We've heard about that today, haven't we? The powerful prey on the weak, and the foreigner was one of the weakest. Now Israel was called by Scripture to protect and provide for the foreigner, but as time went on, They had cultural superiority because, hey, we're God's chosen people, and you're not. And on top of that, they had a narrow reading of the religious laws that created an isolationist perspective, saying, because you are not allowed to participate directly in worship at the temple, you are not one of us, and you have no access to God, which had nothing to do with what God called them to do when he called them to be a light to the nations. But because of their cultural superiority, in their isolationist reading of scripture, they saw foreigners not just as ritually, religiously unclean, but as inherently evil. Foreigners were to be avoided. They were never going to have a part in the people of God. They do not belong. But that's not what God says time and again. God has a heart for the vulnerable and the weak, like the foreigner. In Deuteronomy 10, which we read last week, but I'm going to put it up again, he said, It says, God loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And the very next line is, Therefore, you should love the sojourner, the foreigner dwelling in your midst. And God has a plan to bring that sojourner into his family. Yes, they may be a foreigner, an outsider now, but he wants to bring them in. In Isaiah 56 7, God's promise to them is, I will bring them to my holy mountain. That's Jerusalem. Mount Zion, the place where the temple was, and I will accept their offerings, and my house will be a house of prayer for all people. Hear how God's words are directly spoken to their greatest insecurities, fears, and shame. Your worship will be accepted. I know right now you can't enter the temple. Your worship is accepted. You will be accepted. You may be homeless, but your home is with me. Here with me you belong, inside of my city. Think about the power of God's promises directly to the tired, poor, huddled masses. The immigrant fleeing from poverty or war. The immigrant seeking a home with God and his people. Time and again, God speaks directly into our greatest fears and insecurities, our greatest shame. It says, I want to reverse that with my restoration and my presence. This is God's heart for the vulnerable and the weak. What does God's heart mean for us? I think even just looking briefly at these couple of verses is, there's an inherent challenge and calling to all of us. In God's love of the outcast, the eunuch, and the foreigner, as he is offering them astounding promises of welcome and belonging in him, there's inherent challenge and calling to us. One Old Testament scholar, Gary Smith, summed up the challenge of Isaiah 56 this way. God, according to Isaiah 56, does not deal with people on the basis of their ethnicity or exclude people because they are different. God invites all people to worship him without regard to their race or their nationality or their language or their former lifestyle. If God welcomes everyone who holds fast to their relationship to him, can we do any less? And I also think that because those of us who love God should love what God loves, And because God loves the foreigner, you think it's possible that we should, too? <laughs> I love God. I want to love what He loves. What does He love? God's love for the foreigner should shape our worldview. And our values. Our priorities, our lifestyle, our spending. Actually, just put it on anything. God's heart for anything should shape us. The things that God says no to should shape us. The things God calls us to should shape us. Our worldview, our priorities, our values, our politics should be shaped by God's heart. What he loves, we should love. What he desires, we should desire. And I think that's true of God's heart for the foreigner and how it should shape us. It should most definitely affect our posture towards the actual immigrants that we run into. Our view of them, whether we see them as a threat or a People to embrace because we are simply God's arms in this position. And God's heart should also influence our vocations. This is where each of us needs to work this out in the places God has called us. Our relationships, our jobs, whether you work on Capitol Hill or you work in law or you work in business or in education, whether you walk around a neighborhood or walk around a school, God's heart for the weakest, for the foreigner, should come into play in how we do our vocations. Each of us has a responsibility before God to align our heart with his, and we as a church do as well. And that's what we're in the process of continuing to do even now. God's heart for the outcast is also God's heart for us as outcasts. In Isaiah 56, 8, this, the end of this section, it says, The Lord God, who gathers the outcast of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. God is the gatherer of outcasts. That is good news for everyone in this room. In his life, Jesus welcomed the outcast. This is kind of obvious, right? The Roman, foreign Roman centurion, Jesus talks to him and says, I will heal your servant. Jesus touches the unclean leper that nobody else wanted to get near. Jesus eats with the outcast tax collector that nobody else would eat with. And he does the same for us. In his life, Jesus welcomed the outcast, pointing to his death where he made a way for any of us to be welcomed near. You know, the temple, which was talked about a number of times in this passage, was the place where it was believed God dwelled in Israel. And in the Holy of Holies, which was the inner sanctum of the temple where nobody could go but once a year, the high priest, it was the place where the glory, the holy presence of God dwelt. Nothing was allowed to get near that. And it was part of the reason for all the ritual uncleanness rules and all the reasons why you can't come near if this, this, or this. Because all of our uncleanness ritually was to be symbolic of our depth of sinful brokenness, our unholiness before God. All of our ritual uncleanness in that old old world kept you outside, you could not come near the temple. And that was why the eunuch and the foreigner were cut off. They were kept from coming near the temple because it was the presence of the holiness of God and his people. But think about this. Jesus was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. Why were executions often, they took place outside the walls of the city and especially of Jerusalem? Because it was symbolic of saying, you are cut off. You are not one of us. And you have no access to God. To be executed outside the walls of Jerusalem was to be called anathema, cursed, cut off, condemned, damned. It was symbolic of what was happening to you. But of course, in Jesus and on the cross, that is exactly what happens. Jesus is cut off from the temple, from God's people, symbolically, but also spiritually and eternally, as God turns his back on his own son as he is bearing the sin of all humanity, not just ritual uncleanness, but our fallenness, our brokenness, our sin. And he is pushed outside the walls, cut off. God says to the foreigner, or the foreigner in verse 3 of chapter 58 says, it says, let not the foreigner say, the Lord will separate me. The great fear of the foreigner is, God's going to push me outside the walls. But the gospel says Jesus was pushed outside the walls. He was cut off. He was separated that we might be brought in. That any of us might have a home and a family and finally belong. If you are here today and you look at your own past or your present, or things you're struggling with or your doubts, and you think, I'm not sure I belong. Or if you look around a church like this, and you say, I don't measure up. I'm not married, and everyone else is. I'm not the one with kids, and everyone else has them. I'm not the one with a college degree, and everyone else does. I'm not the one with money, and everyone else does. I'm not the... The gospel says, Jesus came for those who are willing to admit that they have not, are not, cannot on their own. Those who are far off, he wants to bring near. I love that Isaiah 56 has a lot of metaphoric language, intentional metaphoric language. The two metaphors that are strung throughout are, are one of proximity, nearness, and movement, and the other one having to do with home and family versus being alien or barren or alone. So here's some of the language of movement and proximity. The foreigner or the eunuch is said to join themselves to the Lord. But their fear is the Lord is going to separate them. But the promise of God is I will bring you in. I will gather you. You may come into my walls. You may come into my holy place. Your fears do not need to be realized. I will bring you in proximity to me. I will hug you if you would. And the other is that of family and home in the midst of being an outcast and a homeless and an alien and a lonely. The foreigner and the eunuch were the ultimate lonely and homeless person in that ancient world. And God says in the wording of his promises, I will give you a family. I will give you children. I will give you a home. I will give you a city and a place to dwell. You will be with me. You belong. In Isaiah 56, God calls each of us who feel the farthest, who are the most outcast, to come into relationship to Him. And He also challenges those of us who are already close to go out with His heart for the outcast in this world. Let's pray. God, our Father, you love us. You reach out your arms of love to bring us within the reach of your saving embrace. In our loneliness, you give us family. In our wandering, you give us home. In our hopelessness, you are our hope. And it is by your amazing grace. And then you call us into that same loving grace to extend your arms of love to those who need to feel it. Give us the grace and strength to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.